The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Talk is Jericho. It is the pot of thunder and rock and roll. And here's the highly anticipated, much appreciated, Duff McKagan joke of the week. Chris Jericho, Duff McKagan calling you. Uh, hope everybody's doing well. Hope you're doing good. But listen, um, you know, Robin said to Batman, hey, uh, the car won't start. And uh, Batman says to Robin, would you check the, the battery? And Robin says, what's a Terry? Thank you very much. Goodbye. <laughs> I love it. What's a Terry? Get it? Uh, wouldn't be a Friday without a laugh or a groan uh, from Sir Duff McKagan. Uh, MB Queen coming up with hit jokes. He's getting ready for the Guns N' Roses summer tour. They're hitting uh, the Middle East, Europe, and North America. Dates start June 1st in Abu Dhabi. Fozzie Spring Tour starts next week. We kick things off March 23rd in Bloomington, Indiana. We're rolling all the way through April 17th. Lots of the dates are sold out already. Lots of the VIPs are sold out already, but don't worry. We added more. We're coming to the West Coast with Ugly Kid Joe starting May 4th in Los Angeles. We're hitting Las Vegas, Albuquerque, Houston, Dallas. The full list and all ticket information is up right now on FozzyRock.com. Come watch us play some rock and roll for you and come to the VIP meet and greet. Like I said, I think nine of the cities are sold out so far, but uh, if you still have some available, check out Rock. We meet you, we take pics with you, sign autographs, we do a private sound check just for you. Hit up FozzyRock.com and see you on the road. You can actually even come play with us during the sound check as well. Uh, there's a level of VIP for that too, so go check it out at FozzyRock.com. All right, today the Wrestling Observer Newsletter gave the best book of 2022 to Brian Solomon's Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original Sheik. I read it, and now I've got Brian Solomon on to tell us what inspired the project, how hard it was to write about Ed Farhat, a.k.a. The Sheik, since he basically never broke kayfabe. Some of the stuff he uncovered about The Sheik's life and career, and Brian dug deep and found out about The Sheik's early days in the biz when he was wrestling as G.I. Ed Farhat. Uh, he talked about the matches he had against Bruno Sammartino in the Garden uh, when he started his own promotion, Big Time Wrestling in Detroit, the territorial war he had with Dick the Bruiser. Sheik was a pioneer in television production as well. You hear all about that. And, of course, we talk about the Sheik's run in Japan in the 70s, working mostly for Giant Baba, and then the big resurgence he had in the 90s when he went to FMW with his nephew and protege, Sabu. Brian tells a story about the big fire match at FMW. They nearly killed the Sheik. Has another great story about the Sheik's induction into the WWE Hall of Fame. So let's get into the life and career of one of wrestling's most hated villains and one of the most guarded personalities in history, the Sheik. Now on Talk is Jericho. Have we met before somewhere? I'm sure we have. We actually have. And it's because I used to work for WWE. So um, I wrote for WWE Magazine. Okay, that's right. For like seven years. Oh, wow. What years? 2000 to 2007. So, I mean, I was right there. I, I got there like six months after you did. Well, let's get, get into it for a second. The show started. So what was it like working for WWE Mag Magazine? I've never had somebody on the show before <laughs> who actually wrote for the magazine. It was pretty interesting because you sometimes would forget, at least I would, that everybody's reading this magazine, you know, within the company. So, like, you were talking about how we had met before. I would meet people. I would meet talent 
backstage where I was trying to interview people and, and they would already know who I was. And for a while there, I was like, how do they all know me? I remember Dr. Tom Pritchard introduced me to, to Stone Cold backstage at the garden. And I would been there a couple of years. I'd never met him. And he reached his hand out and, and he said, oh, I know I already know who you are, man. And I'm thinking like, how does Stone Cold know who I am? And it's because he read the magazine every month. So my name was in it. So it was a lot of fun. I loved it. Was it kind of anything you wanted to write about as fair? Did you have to get some approvals or was Vince ever involved in anything? People are shocked at actually how little he was involved. Oh, okay. Shane was involved for a few years. Shane right. was. Yeah, he, yeah, I remember he was in charge of the mags for a few years. Yeah, he was thrilled to be doing that. No, but he, he had direct involvement. And, and sometimes we, we had some involvement with Vince, but, but we were able to get away with a lot. Like I remember, you know, sometimes I would reach out to, we had a where are they now column, and I would reach out to people sometimes without even knowing on occasion that they might be persona non grata or whatever but we would just go ahead and do it and sometimes um even the talent we'd be on the phone with would go to does vince know that you're on the phone with me right now and and i would say well honestly no and you know we, we were young and naive but we we got away with a lot back then even sometimes on those wwe magazine stories because as you probably remember we had raw magazine which was the more kind of reality based the real lives of the superstars and then we had wwe magazine which was more in the storyline and we were given a lot of freedom to just sort of like, as long as it gelled with the storylines, it became creative writing. Like, I remember one, I wrote one about you. I don't know um, if you ever saw it. It was like, like I said, I started about six months after you did. So the idea of the story was like Chris Jericho has walked into, you know, the WWE jungle. Like, w will he survive in the locker room? And so I created this whole fictional vignette of you just arriving at the locker room and every, everybody's buzzing and people are making trouble with you. And it was completely fictionalized, like a hundred percent just fabricated. I remember one time there was some kind of a, a fictional, like what if uh, uh, like Ricky Steamboat versus Chris Jericho and you guys picked Ricky Steamboat to win. And I said to Shane, why are you picking? This is before Ricky <laughs> was even back at WrestleMania <laughs> 2000. I'm like, this, this is terrible. What are you doing? Can I explain this? Because I'm there. Yes. I, I want to know. I'm directly responsible for this. Ah. I tell people this story and they think I'm bullshitting, but now you've confirmed it that this happened. So it did happen. That's funny. Let me explain this. If I could explain all these years later, we had fantasy warfare in raw magazine, right. which in hindsight, we probably never should have had. It just was ill conceived because the problem is, as you know, it would be an old wrestler versus a current wrestler. And what would happen? Blah, blah, blah. If they wrestled. Yeah. Now, the problem with that is you can imagine. The current wrestler is not going to want to lose. <laughs> but then what do you do? Because, you know, how predictable every month the, the current guy. Wins. Right. <laughs> so we're sitting around and we're going, this is literally how it happened. We're going, what could we get away with? Think of us. We have to have the old guy win once. Think of a scenario where we could get away with it. And I, in my naivete, I said, you know what? I remember reading somewhere that Chris Jericho idolized Ricky the Dragon Steamboat and looked up to him. I said, he's not going to mind if he loses to Ricky Steamboat. He's like his hero, right? So I miscalculated. And <laughs> fast forward five years, I did lose to Ricky Steamboat. So it yeah. all panned out. And we heard it. We heard it from Shane because I remember you talked to Shane and Shane came to us. And yeah, that happened. That was many years ago. But uh, currently, uh, and congratulations to you on this, you won the Wrestling Observer Newsletter Award for Best Book of 2022. It was called Blood and Fire. And I was like, every year, I always kind of like to check out what books are in there. And I said, oh, I'm going to read this book. I had no idea what it was about. I just heard that obviously it was good and, and, and Dave Meltzer liked it. So when I kind of looked into it and saw that it was about the Sheik, then I really started showing some interest in it. So first of all, congratulations. And second of all, how did you start to write a book about the Sheik? And how do you even do that uh, in this day and age? Well, I, I quickly discovered why no one had ever done it. It was a challenge because his whole life was a mystery. And right. Because I was thinking years back, I wrote a few other books about wrestling. And in one of them, I had a chapter about the Sheik, you know, so I started getting interested in his life. And I thought to myself, he's, here's a guy, a major star, major attraction, maybe the, the greatest heel of all time, depending on your metric. And he's never had a book done. And I couldn't think of anybody at his level in his era that had never had any book. 
And then, like I said, I kind of found out why, because it was like, I mean, I've described it like archaeology. I mean, it was there was hardly anybody I could talk to. Unfortunately, his family did not want to be involved. And so it was very much piecing things together. And I had to be very honest. Even when I wrote it, I said, look, in the introduction, I said, there are going to be things that I just I do not know. And I was not able to find out. And if that's the case, I'll just I'm going to let you know the reader like, look, it might be this or it might be that. And we'll, we'll probably will never know. So I, I had to take that approach to telling this kind of a story where so much is is just total mystery. And why is that? Why was his family not wanting to be involved? Well, at the time, I mean, so the Sheik had two sons, Eddie Jr. and Tommy. Unfortunately, they both since passed. They actually both passed while I was working on the book. And so part of the problem was that they were in really bad health. Part of the problem was also that they look, I mean, they were very protective. This was a guy who never, never broke kayfabe till the day he died at his funeral. The priest called him chic. Okay. <laughs> During the service. I'm not, I'm not making that up. I found the priest and called him and verified it. So, you know, they were still protecting their dad's legacy or his wishes. And I respect that. I know at one time he had talked about when he was alive doing his own book. It never happened. So they always had this idea in the back of their head, like one of these days, we're going to do a book. The family's going to do a book, but it just never happened. So it was complicated. I mean, we didn't have a, they, they didn't hate me or anything. We didn't have this and any animosity. It was, I spoke with them. It was very amicable, but it was just like, yeah, we're just not going to take part in this. Well, it's interesting because, you know, that's that generation. We had um, a street fight in Minneapolis last year or a year and a half ago, whatever it was. And I wanted Baron Von Raschke to be there because when I was a kid, one of my first wrestling experiences was with him and my first tour, he was on it. So it's just more of a sign of respect. Get him a payday, get him on screen, Baron Von Raschke. And he was supposed to hit Ethan. No, he's supposed to put the claw on Ethan Page. Now, he was there with his daughter. And I think Baron's probably 80. He was telling Ethan, like, you know, you know, if you, if you get too close to me, I'm going to put this claw on you. And it, it, I don't let go, you know, and his daughter was there. And then she kind of turned to do something else. And he's like, he kind of whispered, like, don't worry, it's not going to hurt. I just got to I got to kayfabe my daughter. Amazing. His daughter's like 50. And of course, she knows. <laughs> right. But even with him in his inner circle, he still will never admit the truth. So I can totally see guys like the Sheik never wanting that to be public knowledge even in this progressive, you know, atmosphere of 2023 that we live in now. I actually started to discover he was working everybody. He worked his friends. He worked his family on certain things. And I started to discover as I put it together that I really felt like I was finding out things that even they didn't know. Yeah. Even not just about wrestling stuff, but about his personal life. I looked up his military record. You know, he served in World War II. Like a lot of people, he exaggerated some of the service that he did. And sure. And the story became this huge legend that he had, you know, he was 19 years old. But by the time it, it, it came out, you know, on the other end of the story, it was like he might as well have been General Patton. Right, right, right. <laughs> Sometimes I think that even the kids didn't really fully know things about their dad that I was finding out. Well, and, and you mentioned, uh, you know, how Sabu is uh, Sheik's nephew. You can tell that he was taught by the sheik because he, I remember, I remember years ago, somebody said, Hey, Terry. And he's like, who's Terry. And it's like you. He's like, no, I'm Sabu. Like he was Sabu. And he started going through tables because the sheik told him, if you're going to do a job, you got to take people's minds off of what just happened. And you know, that's why Sabu was one of the first guy to go through a table. And he was very tight lipped about all of his business doings, even up until this day. So you can see sheik's influence living on through Sabu as well. Yeah, I mean, he he's another one, especially in those days, he just would not break. You're talking about calling him Terry. I think it was somebody, he was either Tommy Dreamer or Al Snow. I think it was Al Snow. They told me that they were on a phone call with him once, just the two of them on the phone. And they called him Terry and he, and he went, listen, uh, just call me Sabu. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And Al was like, we're on, it's just us. We're just talking on the phone. There's no one else here, you know? Yeah. But he even had an issue. Um, I'm not sure if you were still, if you were with WWE when Sheik went in the Hall of Fame and Sabu inducted him, Sabu and RVD. And I think it was 07. And Vince had wanted him to give the speech. And he said no. And I think he finally, just to get Vince off his back, he said he would do it. And then when they got on stage, he had Rob 
just say everything. And apparently Vince was furious. You know, he wanted the visual of here's Sabu inducting his uncle and he would not break even for Vince. Right. Well, and that makes perfect sense. And, and also too, why would the Sheik care, you know, what Vince uh, wanted anyways? Because obviously as, as you wrote about, and I want to kind of delve into the history of this man, he definitely was a very unique character all throughout his entire life. Uh, he actually died in 2003. So to get into the W Hall of Fame, it must have been prior to that, obviously, right? No, he, he went in posthumously. Oh. He went in the year that Dusty went in and Cody and Dustin in, inducted him. Oh, Vince wanted a Sabu to speak. Yes, Vince wanted okay. Sabu. Gotcha. Yeah, Vince said to Sabu, like, what are you going to do when you get out there? Like, let me hear it. I, I you know, And Sabu, I think, kind of pretended like he was going to give the speech. Right. And then he had Rob come out and Rob did the whole thing. Gotcha, which is also a very Ed Farhat thing to do. Totally. Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle. Because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider. And also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your crave. So let's talk about this, man. Obviously, you're, you're writing about a guy who was, you know, born in, in 1926 and started becoming prominent, you know, in the late 40s, early 50s. Are you going through records? How are you piecing this together? Because there's a lot of great stuff in there, but there's also a lot of pure facts and figures, which is very interesting if you're an old school wrestling uh, fanatic. Yeah, so one of the things I, I was really wondering about was all the records I could find of his wrestling was that every match he had, he was the Sheik, always. I mean, originally he was called the Sheik of Araby when he first started. Yeah. And I, re I remember thinking, like, no wrestler just walks out for his first match with his gimmick and persona fully formed. And, you know, there had to be, I said, there had to be some early matches where he was himself or some other thing. Yeah. And sure enough, I found it. And it wasn't on any official match records or anything. I had to go into newspaper records, which thankfully almost everything is online these days. I mean, it's it's the greatest gift ever for a historian. But I was able to find like the local Lansing papers. And basically, when he got out of the uh, the war in 45, he started wrestling. He was wrestling amateur in the army. And then he was sort of like working out at the YMCA, like you hear about a lot of the, the guys in that era. And he got discovered by the Detroit area promoters. And when he started, he was just Eddie Farhat from Lansing. And the, with the idea, here's this fresh faced kid, local kid. He's a GI. He's back from the war, total baby face. And he actually had a few matches like that. And I think I, I wrestled for about two years like that. And I think it was completely buried. Like, I think he really wanted to make sure nobody found out because it's not listed anywhere. Even people I knew that I spoke to and interviewed that knew him well were not aware of those matches. So how did he kind of uh, become the Sheik? Like you mentioned, he has his earlier history. And at some point, he's one of the most powerful promoters in the wrestling business, which a lot of people might not know. But there's a transitional period in between that, like you mentioned, where he becomes this persona of being the Sheik. Who gave that to him? So he started wrestling in 47, 1947, as Eddie Farhat. And the earliest matches as the Sheik of Araby is 1949. As far as the details of how it exactly happened, there's no way anybody's going to know that. I mean, we don't have, you know, there's never, nowadays there's so many shoot interviews and we know more than we ever wanted to know about all everybody and how everything started. But what I do know is he was discovered by a couple of people. There was the Detroit promoter, was a guy by the name of Harry Light, and he was an original NWA member. And his right-hand man was Burt Ruby, who basically ran a lot of the spot shows and the and the suburb shows and things. And then they had Lou Klein, who was like the trainer. He ran the, they wouldn't call it a wrestling school back then, but whatever the equivalent of that was. Right. Basically, what I think happened is they all got together. It would have been Burt Ruby, the promoter, his boss, Harry Light, and Lou Klein, the trainer. And they worked with him to come up with something that would, you know, be more interesting than Eddie Farhat, the GI. And what people may not know 
is that, yes, he was actually Lebanese. He was Syrian. That was real. He was not a Muslim. He was Catholic, actually. He was raised Catholic. There's a sect of Catholics in Lebanon, Syria, that were never converted to Islam. So basically, when that whole region was converted to Islam in the Middle Ages, there's this little pocket of Christians. And so Sheikh Eddie Farhat was descended from them. And they kind of used the, the Arab background to sort of play up this heel character they wanted. And I found the first record of any match when he used it. They were kind of testing it out. It's kind of funny. It's like almost like how they do it today. They didn't just bring him to the main arena in Detroit, Olympia Stadium, and just put him out there. They tried it out in the boonies somewhere. There was some town south in Ohio somewhere, south of there. And it's so funny. I found the clipping from the match. And this is the first time he ever did it. And it's described in there, the sports writer, talking about how the crowd wanted his blood. I mean, they wanted to kill him. Like it says that in the article. Yeah. You know, we don't, we don't know who this guy is. But the fans wanted him dead. And I'm just going like right out of the gate. You know, it's working. Then they knew it was working. And then they brought him up to Detroit. And the thing that I love about, too, about the whole chic persona is once he finally harnesses it and, and gets gets it going, because like you mentioned, it is people just wanting to see him lose. But he does just the opposite. Yeah. There's a point in his career where he never loses. And what the mindset of that was is that people will continue to pay to see this guy get beat up and lose. But if it never happens, they'll continue to keep paying, right. which is so crazy because in this day and age, after two or three or four weeks, people would start rioting at that type of concept, you know? No, you're right. And, and that's actually what happened. But it didn't take it took years for that to happen because, you know, back then everything moved a lot slower. Right. You know, there's no pay-per-views. So like He's doing this mainly in front of live crowds, 10, 15, 20,000 people at a time. So you can stretch that out over years and years and build the mystique. But even that can't last forever. I mean, um, he started in 49 by the 60s. Like you were saying, that's when he really became a promoter. And once he became the promoter in Detroit, in Michigan, in Ohio, that's when he starts to become invincible and never wanting to lose he had this idea, I think he was probably a, a little bit paranoid, but maybe justified the way that wrestling was booked back then. Like if you were a heel, usually you had a very limited shelf life. Yes. You would come into a territory, they would build you up, you would eventually lose and then you were kind of done and, and and you would either sink down the card or you have to go somewhere else. They, they would build you up for, for whoever the top guy was, for example, Bruno. Right. You'd come in, you'd get one MSG main event to beat the buildup guy, and then you'd come in the next month and lose to Bruno. So you basically have two, maybe three headlining matches at MSG, and then you were gone, right? Right, and he knew that. And, you know, it's funny, like sometimes I've read about the way that Roddy Piper looked at it was really similar too. I'm thinking like, yeah. I never want to lose because if I lose, I'm done. I'm dead as a heel. And, and so the Sheik had this idea of, well, I control the book and, you know, and then when I travel to other territories, if I'm a big enough star, I can call the shots. And it became this thing of what I, I, I you mentioned Bruno. I called him the anti Bruno, where like <laughs> Bruno also never lost. But the difference was that people wanted to see Bruno win. You know, they yeah. went there to see him win. So they were happy when he won. When you have this guy who never loses and every time people are getting behind because they had it in reverse. The Sheik, like Bruno, would be on top, but he would be the heel, and they would build up the next baby face to go against him, and everybody would get their hopes up, everybody would get behind that person, and then they would lose. And you do that enough times, and people just lose hope, and they just give up. And it actually happened. I mean, his territory got really hot in the mid-60s, and by about 12 years later, which sounds like a long time, but it's really not, when you think about these territories, right? About a 12 years later, they were already kind of do going down the tubes and the crowds were disappearing and people were had just had enough of it. So it didn't work forever. Right, 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 right. And, and but, but once again, too, and then, you know, obviously there's so much to talk about. But 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 another thing that felt really interesting from reading your book was the promotional war between the Sheik and between Dick the Bruiser and Detroit, because the Detroit area was Sheik's Cobo Hall, which is famous for for being where one of my all time favorite records, Kiss Alive, 
was recorded. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. When it opened, it was one of the top draws, even more so than, than a lot of the like the NBA teams was the Sheik in big time wrestling. And then suddenly Dick the Bruiser muscles in and you have a legit territory where both companies are doing eight, nine thousand tickets, you know, every show. Talk a little bit about that, because because promotional wars exist now. Obviously, we're in one between AEW and WWE, but that's a nationwide one. Back in this time frame, there was territorial promotional wars. And also in those days, usually the wars did not last for very long, that usually somebody gave up pretty quickly. I mean, there would be a few months sometimes of going head to head, and then somebody would get kind of crushed. They generally didn't tend to go on for years. And this was one that went on for years. So for people that don't know, it's from about 71 to about 74. So the idea is this, the territory that Sheik had, it was originally much larger. So you had before Sheik, there was Jim Barnett and Johnny Doyle. And they ran a territory that ran from Michigan in the north, down through Ohio, into Indiana. And basically, the Sheik bought part of it. He bought like half of it. He paid for it. He paid Barnett and Doyle, which in those days was the thing to do, even though, I mean, none of this would hold up in a court of law, but he paid for the territory. But the other half of it was not bought and paid for. Dick the Bruiser and his business partner, Wilbur Snyder, they basically forced Barnett and Doyle out. Okay. Jim Barnett and Johnny Doyle, they left the country. They were going to Australia. They went to Australia and started up a promotion there. They were getting out of the U.S. So Bruiser took over half the territory, and then his attitude was, well, I'm going to take the whole thing. I bullied Barnett and Doyle out of this half of it. Now I'm going to move into Detroit, and I'm going to push the Sheik out. It didn't really work. The main reason that it lasted so long was that the Bruiser would not give up. Like He refused to give up, and part of that was he had a money person behind him. There was a guy named Lincoln Cavalieri, who was the promoter at the Olympia Stadium, which is the other big arena in those days in Detroit. And that guy, he wanted in on wrestling. He wanted to have his own wrestling promotion that would be in his building. And so he bankrolled Bruiser and they rolled into town and they would start doing head to head shows. I mean, people talk about, you know, Monday Night Wars where you got Raw and Nitro on at the same time. That's one thing. They're on television. But you're talking about in the city of Detroit for a period of like two or three years, you would have Saturday nights where these shows were both happening very often on the same night. Like you could go to this side of town and see the Sheik's big time wrestling at Kobo, or you can go to this side of town and you can see Dick the Bruiser's WWA at the Olympia Stadium. And I mean, they were doing numbers. You would have 12,000 people here, 10,000 people there. And that's, you're talking like every week, every other week, 25,000 people in the city of Detroit going to see wrestling. They were head to head. But the thing was, the truth is that the Bruiser never got a foothold. Like every time they would run against each other, the Sheik would always be just a little bit ahead, would always, you know, they ran against each other probably like 20 something times. And you can count on one hand and have fingers left over the amount of times that Bruiser actually outdrew the Sheik when they were running against each other. So eventually, you know, you just kind of see the writing on the wall. I think the turning point became when the Sheik, he really wanted to end it. And so what he started doing was, of course, he started buying television. Right. In Bruiser's domain. And also in those days, Dick the Bruiser was partners with Vern Gagne and the NWA which was a much bigger operation. Mm -hmm. So he started putting TV in their area. And then they, that's when then they got pissed off and they reached out and he said, well, look, you want me to stop doing that? Stop invading my towns. And that's really how the war ended. And then they just started doing business together. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. I thought it was interesting too when you were talking about um, how the Sheik was kind of a, a pioneer in television production. He was actually uh, 
the um, in the book, there's a whole section about how he was the first his television was the first wrestling television to really be a lot of it done independently. You know, in those days, a lot of times the TV was not produced by the wrestling company. It was produced by the TV company. It would be the local TV studio. You'd be using their guys, their cameras, their space. Basically, the TV studio just said, you give us the wrestlers, you book the show, and we'll film it. And so the Sheik was the first to really take it in-house. He had a production truck, which is a big deal. I mean, you know, now, every you know, that's how you do it. But this is 1970, and he's got a production truck, and he's... He started doing the TV. First, he was doing it in a studio. And then he started actually doing TV from the arena, which, again, in that era, you didn't see very much. And even in the book, I mentioned it's sort of like a precursor to what Monday Night Raw became, for example, or Monday Nitro became, where you're doing weekly live TV from your main arenas. So in that way, he he really was ahead of his time, ahead of the curve. Uh, he was he was doing so well with the TV trucks that he started renting them out. They were using his trucks for rock concerts, for oh, wow. sporting events, local sports, and you know he was able to really kind of make a side business out of it. What was it like for him at other territories around the country? You know, we've mentioned MSG, for example. Why don't we start with his his history in New York City, working for Vince Senior? Yeah, I didn't realize. I knew that he had had the series with Bruno. That's probably the most famous thing that he ever did in the New York area, where he had that the classic kind of like three match feud at the Garden that that they would have back then. But what I didn't know is that he spent about two years solid in the earlier part of his career working for Vince Senior in the days when it was Capital Wrestling. This was like end of the fifties, and at that time he was a tag team wrestler. He was kind of a mid card tag team wrestler. They had him teamed up with Wild Bull Curry, and they would often be on top. Like they would wrestle Antonino Rocca and Miguel Perez at the Garden and big main events like that. But for the most part, they were not really main event guys. But then about 10 years later, it couldn't be more different, you know, because in the course of the 60s, the Sheik had built himself up to be one of the hottest attractions in all of wrestling. So apparently, like in the late 60s, the Worldwide Wrestling Federation was kind of hurting a little bit. They they had lost some of their TV and the crowds were down. They were still strong in the garden, but nowhere else. So like in Philly and Baltimore and D.C., towns like that, Boston, the crowds were kind of getting smaller. And the story was, again, I can't, I, this, it's a big asterisk because you never know what to believe. But the story was that the Sheik did it as a favor. He did it as a favor to Vince for helping him early in his career, he came into the territory. He said, we're going to pop some houses. We're going to go up and down the coast. I'll give you some big sellouts and all this stuff. And and I'm not going to ask for anything. And they went everywhere. They went to all the major Northeast arenas over the course of almost a year, just selling out everywhere with Bruno. They did the three garden matches. They did Philadelphia, Boston Garden, Baltimore, Providence, all the places, all the big, uh, WWF towns in those days. And um, New York was very hot for him, but there were other territories outside of his home territory that were even bigger as far as bringing in the Sheik as an attraction. There was um, Los Angeles. He was a major attraction in Los Angeles for the LaBelles. And also, of course, Maple Leaf Gardens, which was kind of affiliated anyway with Detroit because it was the Toronto-Detroit relationship was really close. But he wrestled a lot for Frank Tunney. The numbers he would do at Maple Leaf Gardens were record-breaking, main eventing with Tiger Jeet Singh and drawing. Like the Maple Leaf Gardens had been there, you know, since the dawn of time. And they were doing right. some of the, the biggest wrestling crowds that the arena had ever seen. So I would have to say outside of his own territory, Toronto was definitely his biggest area. And then and then Los Angeles. Let's talk a little bit about Los Angeles and, and kind of about, you know, Northern California as well with Roy Shire. And, and, and we were just at the Cow Palace, which is hilarious that it still exists, but it's got such history behind it. And I know the Sheik was was fairly popular there as well. Yeah, he was. He, he actually wrestled for Roy Shire in the North California Territory first in the 60s. 
but it was really the LA one that where he became a much bigger deal and he would go back all the time. And I remember I talked to Jeff Walton, who was the right-hand man for Mike LaBelle when I wrote the book. And so when Sheik would come into town in Los Angeles, he would take him around. And he told me how, you know, one of the reasons was that the Sheik just loved coming to Los Angeles. He would go shopping on Rodeo Drive. And <laughs> if anyone's ever seen pictures of the Sheik away from the ring, I mean, he he had the clothes, he had the jewelry. He looked like a sheik. I mean, he looked like a wealthy oil sheik. And so I think he loved coming out there. Uh, he had a really good relationship with Mike LaBelle. They were about the same age. They were really great friends. And and him and Blassie, I mean, they had huge matches there. In fact, as I said in the book, one of the ways that you could tell how hated the sheik was, was that anytime they put him in there against another heel, the heel would turn. It would never be him. There was never anyone as evil as the Sheik. So didn't matter who he was in there with. So like Blassie, who had been hated in California forever, he's feuding with the Sheik. And now the crowd is going for Blassie and, and Blassie turns face. Even though Blassie didn't change anything about himself, he still wrestled the same. He still acted the same. His promos were the same. But just by virtue of the fact that he was wrestling the Sheik, people started liking him. And they would bring him out about once a month. In, in the heyday of the Sheik, in the late 60s, early 70s, he was going there about once a month. What about, like, with his his style, you know, of being so blood-heavy? Was that something that, that everybody was cool with? Like, when he came into town, were people like, all right, here's the Sheik, he's going to... Because I know you were saying that at first, like, Bruno Sammartino had some heat with him, or I think Lu Luthez, there's a great story about Luthez <laughs> not wanting to deal yeah. with his, his bullshit or whatever. Yeah, it wasn't to everybody's liking. But at the end of the day, the thing was, they all knew that, that he drew money. And they all knew that his act drew money. And in some cases, especially in those days where you still had a lot of wrestlers who were shooters, and there still was a lot of this aura of, we have to try to make this believable, or we have to have, quote unquote, real wrestling in there. We can't just have guys tearing each other apart. There were some promoters that would hold their nose, like Sam Muchnick was one who, he was you know, in St. Louis, they presented this, they, they had a very, especially in those days, a very sports-like presentation. So there's a story in the book of where they bring him in and it's basically like, okay, you're wrestling Pat O'Connor tonight. We need you to have a very, very clean match. We don't want you know, don't go outside the ring. None of the craziness, none of the blood. You're just going to have a straight ahead match. And he just ignored everything that they said. <laughs> and he's throwing tables and chairs and everything they told him not to do. And basically, he was never invited there again. So it wasn't for everybody. Like I said, it was just, for example, when he wrestled for the Funks in Texas, they loved him. Because, I mean, that was a wild and woolly territory, West Texas, Amarillo. He went back to Terry and Dory's dad, Dory Sr., wrestling in the 60s. And uh, I even talked to Baby Doll. Her, her father was a promoter in Lubbock in Texas. Oh, wow. Yeah, they would bring the Sheik in all the time. And they loved him there because he was wild and crazy. But it really depended where you went. I mean, you know, as long as it was making money, that's really at the end of the day what they cared about. Like I said in the book, the thing with the Sheik, bringing him into other territories, he didn't even need an angle. There didn't have to be a buildup. All you had to do was say, Sheik is coming in two weeks. Th that was that was it. it, it nah. you know, people would come just when you just said that because they knew about him from the magazines they had heard about him. Maybe he had been there a couple of years ago and they were waiting for him to come back. You know, and that's how you keep it fresh, too, because he had that option that wrestlers don't always have today, which is where he could go all over the place. Oh, they're getting tired of me here. OK, I'll go here. All right. I, I've, you know, they're getting sick of me in Texas. I'll go to New York. They're getting sick of me in New York. I'll go, you know, to California like you could do that. I'll go to Florida. And so he kept himself fresh by being this kind of force of nature that would just all of a sudden he's in your territory and you have to go see him, you know? Friday, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. What a wonderful day! This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. They stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters Friday. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. 
Let's talk about kind of the era of the Sheik that I know more about. And obviously, you don't have to start right with FMW. But but let's talk about his impact in Japan from, from the 70s going forward until his, which I did not even realize his late career resurgence in FMW. Just how lucrative that was. But before we get to that, let's talk about his his impact in Japan as a whole and when he first got there. So he started going to Japan in the early 70s, and that was around the era just about when All Japan and New Japan started. Because before that, there had been the, the Japanese Wrestling Association, which was the company that Ricky Dozan started. Yeah. Ricky Dozan had his two protégés, right? He had Giant Baba and he had Antonio Inoki. And after Ricky Dozan died, they eventually split off. They started their two companies. And from the beginning... It was Baba's company, and I think it was because Baba had a little more experience wrestling in the United States. It was Baba's company that would bring in a lot of the American stars. They loved having, you know, in later years, it would be people like Bruiser Brody, Stan Hansen, and, and those guys, Terry Gordy. And before Sheik, it had been Luthez, Freddie Blassie, The Destroyer. Those guys would go over there and just be monstrous stars. And the Sheik started coming for a Giant Baba, in the early 70s, the problem is, you know, he had his own company that he's running in the U.S. So he didn't have the luxury of some guys would go there and spend months there. They'd spend the summer there or whatever. Right. He could never get away for more than, say, two or three weeks and he would go. But he, he did only one tour for Inoki. And the, the, the interesting thing is at the time and in the book, I talk about how how many times people tried to run against the Sheik. Sometimes his own wrestlers would defect and start a promotion and try to run against him. There was one time when he went to Japan, and it happened to be for Inoki, where they were literally waiting for him to leave the country. You know, his booker, Jack Kane, defected, his top stars defected, Mark Lewin, all of his, and started opposition. And so he had to come home early, and he never worked with Inoki again, because Inoki was really pissed off that he that he missed his bookings and everything. But for the most part, he wrestled for Baba for about 10 years on and off. And the, the thing that ended it was by about 1981, right after the Sheik's company went out of business, because big time wrestling went under in 1980. He got very bitter at the NWA. He felt like they hadn't done enough to help him and to keep him afloat. He felt like they had it, they had it out for him. And to a certain degree, they did. And so he started working for a lot of outlaw promotions, like he worked for the Pafos, and he would go to work for when Jim Wilson and Thunderbolt Patterson, they started up an outlaw in Atlanta running against Jim Barnett at the Omni. And so he would do these renegade things, and he wound up getting himself blacklisted. So the NWA blacklisted him in 1981. Problem with that is Baba was a member. So <laughs> Baba had to stop using him, which is so ridiculous when you think about it, because it has nothing to do with Japan. I mean, this was stuff that was only happening in, in North America, but Baba had to follow the rules. And so the sheep was kind of locked out of Japan until Onita and the FMW stuff in the 90s. As a quick segue back, another story that I, I was going to tell before we uh, talking about Japan. I know obviously Bruno Sammartino was a huge name there, and this didn't happen in Japan. But there's a great little story about the payoffs that Sheik was giving some of those guys, and it just reminded me when you were talking about that. I didn't want to forget it. Talked about the Bruno story and about how after one time of getting underpaid, uh, what his reaction was for the next show that they were supposed to do together. Yeah, and Sheik would shoot himself in the foot a lot like this it was he was not known i'm not i'm not breaking any news here he was not known for being the most generous payoff guy <laughs> he was he was one of those promoters where if you were in his inner circle and he really liked you and you were loyal to him and you drew him money he would pay you well if you were anybody else you really weren't going to get paid very well at all so he would do this to people even when it would sometimes blow up in his face so when he was having the war with Bruiser at the height of it, it was in that in-between period where Bruno had lost the WWF world title and he had not yet regained it. So he had this little window of a couple of years where Bruno was able to tour the territories, which he never could really do. He was usually stuck in the Northeast. And so the Sheik wanted to bring him in because they're fighting this war with Dick the Bruiser. So the Sheik and Bruno Sammartino face each other at Kobo Arena. 
which was a really huge deal. They'd wrestled at the Garden, and now they're going to wrestle right here in Detroit in the Sheik's home turf. They wound up doing the largest crowd that the Sheik ever did in Cobo Arena, and he still stiffed Bruno on the payoff, (laughs) which is so self-destructive. And Dave Brzezinski, who worked in the office in those days, and he he was later Sheik's manager, Supermouth Dave Drayson, he told me the story because he was working in the office for Sheik. After the show with Bruno and Sheik, he took Bruno out to dinner to take care of him. They went out to, to a nice restaurant and Bruno confided in Dave and said, I'm not coming back here. And I found it interesting because Bruno always had that reputation of everyone got along with him. The nicest guy, the humblest guy, you know, he didn't have an attitude. He didn't have an ego. Yeah. And even he is saying, look, I'm not coming back here. I, I forget the numbers. It's in the book, but it was a significant drop of from what he was promised. You said it was he was supposed to get 2000 and he got 800. There bucks. Go. Yes, that's it. He was supposed to get 2000. He got 800. And look, this is the guy who drew the house. It's not, I mean, he has a legitimate gripe. I mean, he's the reason that there were 13,000 people in the building, which was the capacity of the building. And uh, so he said, listen, don't tell anybody, but I'm not coming back. And again, this was very uncharacteristic because he was advertised for the rematch at the next show and he didn't tell anybody. He just didn't show. Yeah, just no show. Yeah, that was not something that he did. And Dave was telling me, I'm backstage at Kobo Arena and I know that Bruno's not showing up and no one else knows. And everyone's going, where's Bruno? Where's Bruno? <laughs> and they had to do a last minute replacement. And actually, Bruno wound up going to work for Dick the Bruiser, who you know <laughs> was running opposition to the Sheik. But th- that's the result of those kind of uh, stingy practices. If you don't reward people, that that's what you get. Well, yeah. And once again, you know, to hear those types of stories always makes me laugh because I love kind of the old school way of doing things and how, how that would, uh, because most guys would go, Hey, Sheik, pay me the money you owe me and, you know, make sure you don't do it again or I won't show up. Right. But instead, no, I'm just not doing it. Yeah. (laughs) It it was more like, right. It was exactly, it wasn't like, I'm not, I'm not going to confront him. I'm just going to screw him over. Like he did that to me. Yeah. Now I'm going to leave him holding the bag and we'll see how he feels. That's exactly what it was. Friday, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. What a wonderful day! This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters Friday. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. So let's talk about how uh, she kind of came back into prominence in the 90s with FMW. And like you said, made almost or over a million dollars yeah. with Onita's company. So that's just an amazing story because, like you said, he was probably in his 60s when the offer first came. Yeah, and they were they were willing to pay him anything to get him out there. So Why was that, Brian? Well, Onita started FMW in the very tail end of the 80s, I guess, early 90s. And Onita had been a young boy in all Japan. And he had basically carried the Sheik's bags around back in the day. And he remembered him. And so he's trying to start up this upstart promotion, which, of course, was sort of like, I guess, the ECW of Japan would be the best way you could describe it. The aura of the Sheik was something that still carried over in Japan, like in, I'm sure you know this, but th- they have a much better memory there, the wrestling fans. And when you become a legend there, they don't forget about you. I mean, it, it, you're a legend forever. And so Onita and other people were just sort of like, hey, what if we brought in the Sheik? And, and they were kind of saying, is he still alive? Is he still wrestling? You know, it was like they were trying to get, you know, the Loch Ness Monster to come in or something or, the, or Bigfoot. <laughs> right, 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 right. And they tracked him down. They found him. He had a couple of conditions. See, because here's the thing, because everybody talks about Sabu, and Sabu was made by those FMW tours and became a big star. But that was not really the original purpose. It was basically the Sheik saying, I'll come there, but you have to let me bring my nephew with me. And they were like, who's your nephew? Oh, he's my nephew, Sabu. And look, there were a couple of reasons. One was self-serving because the Sheik couldn't really do much by that point. So he needed somebody Right. To take the bombs, in many cases, take the falls and things. 
but also he genuinely was trying to help to make his nephew into a star. But the Sheik really was who they wanted, even though he could do nothing except, you know, it was all just his character work. He couldn't bump. He couldn't really do anything. But they brought him in. And again, people can say, why was he doing this? Because he was, let's see, born in 26. So he would have been close to 60 when it started in his mid 60s by the end of that run. Why would he do this to himself? We know he almost died a couple of times when he was there. The reason is the money. I mean, look, he had gone bankrupt. He had gone broke. He was going to lose his house. And they're telling him, we will pay you $10,000 a match. And all you have to do is just walk out to the ring, shake a sword around, stand on the apron, kind of growl at people. You know, you're not really even having to get in the ring that much. It's five minutes. You come back to the locker room and you got $10,000. And actually, they would pay him in cash before he even left the locker room to go to the ring. It would be right there. <laughs> his wife, Joyce, was, you know, his financial person. And there were stories that he was bringing home so, and I, he's not the only one. There are a lot of stories about American wrestlers in those days. They're bringing home so much cash that they're stuffing it in their luggage. They're stuffing it in their boots. And I guess the restrictions were a lot lighter back then with going through airports, but he's bringing home, I mean, $10,000 a match. And he's working there for on and off doing these tours for like three or four years. And yeah, he wound up making over a million dollars doing it. He was able to get out of debt. He was able to save his house. So that's why he did it. How could he say no? He didn't have an option that was anywhere near as good as that. Well, I'm just doing, yeah. I mean, that's a hundred matches. There you go. Hundred matches is a million dollars, and and um and 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 once again, Onita was an upstart company. I, I worked there in '91. It was my first Japanese tour. You know, he was trying to make a name for himself, and the original gimmick was bringing in old, legit fighters from the past. Right. Um, I remember my second tour. There, I only did two tours. The second time, Leon Spinks was there. And then he started bringing in Tiger Jeet Singh. And then you mentioned Sabu became a huge draw. And the caveat for that was the Sheik brought in Sabu, but then Sabu also brought the Sheik and they kind of helped each other. And that gave them name value. That's what kind of brought them apart from the pack from all Japan and New Japan in the early 90s. Yeah, because you mentioned the martial arts thing. The, the, you know, FMW stands for Frontier Martial Arts Wrestling. Yeah. And yeah, in the beginning, that's what they were going for, more like sort of like a pseudo MMA. But then, you know, it became much, much more of just complete mayhem and just the barbed wire and the flaming ring ropes and all that stuff and explosions and everything. It just it turned into something very different. Did you have interaction with the Sheik when you were over there? I don't think I ever met the Sheik because the only time I was there with Sabu was in 1992 in the Yokohama Stadium. I think the main event was Tiger Jeet Singh against Onita. So I don't know if Sheik was there that tour. And if he wasn't, then I never met him. Okay. His fingerprints were all over, uh, you know, just even the, the genesis of the company, even to the point where, and Sabu just told the story on Talk is Jericho when we, we, we had him on the cruise. Like I said, about how Sheik told him to start taking bumps through tables if you lose, because then people will forget doing the actual job in the ring. So he still had a lot of that influence. But talk about, because we're talking barbed wire matches and the forks and the blood and all that stuff. But talk about the fire match that you wrote about fairly detailed in the, in the book. This was uh, something that Onita apparently was very upset about that it that went down this way because Onita really did love the Sheik very much and really looked up to him and had brought him in to help his company, but also as a sign of respect. And it wound up being a situation where he Sheik really almost died. I mean, the match is out there. People can see it. Right. It's absolutely brutal. The problem was they were doing it outdoors and they had these ring ropes kind of. It really wasn't even ring ropes. It was just barbed wire as the ropes. And then the barbed wire is wrapped with these rags that are on fire. They're like rags that are soaked with kerosene or whatever it is. And the flames got so out of control. It was, I'm trying, it was Sabu and Sheik versus Tarzan Goto and um, maybe it was Onita. Yeah, maybe. But, but immediately, like seconds into the match, they realized, like, we got to get out of here. Because the, the wind was blowing, the fire 
Uh, Sabu said in his book that the barbed wire was turning red. Like that's how hot it was getting. It was it was real metal wire. Sabu and the Sheik versus Gojo and Onita. Yeah, there it is. Yeah. yeah. And basically seconds in, they're just like, we, we got to get out of here. We're calling it off and we're trying to get out of the ring. You know, Sabu talked about how, well, I mean, Sabu is like superhuman. So he leaps out of the ring and he's out on the floor. Everybody else gets out of the ring. And Sabu just kind of has this thought of like, holy shit, my uncle. <laughs> I forgot about my uncle. <laughs> right. Here's this guy. Look, I said it in the book. This is somebody's grandpa, you know? Right. We think of him as the crazy sheik. This is grandpa to somebody. This is somebody who's pushing 70. He could barely get in the ring, let alone get out. I mean, really, truly. And so they look back and he's in there and, you know, the flames are around him. And they're trying to get him out, and they finally wound up helping him out, getting him out, and they're immediately throwing water on him. And the craziest thing, now, he suffered third-degree burns in that. I mean, serious burning. And I talked to people who actually saw him and said it was true that his back was just covered with these burns. And, of course, when you get burned like that, it doesn't show up immediately. So when you watch the footage, you can't really tell at first. When he gets out of the ring, you can't quite tell, but the craziest part of it is he is still in character. You watch him. He is, while he has almost just been burned to death, he comes out of the ring and starts throwing fireballs at people and lunging at them. <laughs> the people that are trying to save his life and put the fire out, and he's lunging at them and throwing fireballs. <laughs> I mean, it's absolutely insane. And then he, you know, he wound up almost kind of slipping into a coma when they took him out of that. And, he, you know, he went to the hospital. People will say, well, okay, well, that was the end of it then. That's when it ended, right? And no, it's not because he missed a few weeks. He went back home, he recovered, and then he went back to the tour and he kept going and he just kept doing it until he finally, unfortunately, he had a heart attack after a match. And that really was the end where they said, look, you are going to die doing this. If you keep doing this, you are going to die. His last match was against Damien 666 in 95 at one of their anniversary shows at Kawasaki Stadium, which was like, it actually wound up being the biggest crowd that he ever wrestled in front of. It was just some insane, like 40,000 people or something. And then after the match, he's getting into a taxi cab. He has a heart attack. Everybody flew out there. Sabu flew out and Joyce's wife came out and they just said, look, you have to stop. This is it. This is absolutely it. You're going to be 70 years old and you can't do this anymore. I don't care how much you're paying. They're paying you. And, and that that was the end. Not 1995. So 1947 to 1995. Hell of a run, right? Yeah. And how old was he then at that point in time? In 1995, he he was 68, a few months from his 69th birthday, I believe. Jeez. That is unbelievable. Yeah. So eight years later, he passes away. So yes, he was 68, almost 69. That's that's insane. Last few things, Brian. Um, you mentioned throwing fireballs, and obviously I am a wizard. So um, I've thrown a few fireballs over the last few years, actually over the last year. But was the Sheik the first guy to, to bring a fireball into pro wrestling as far as you know? He was. He actually was the first. He, You know, the funny thing is wow. they called him the original Sheik, but he wasn't the original Sheik. There were other wrestling Sheiks before him, but he was the first person to do the fire. Apparently he got it from, you know, it was, a, it was an old magic trick. And in the early years, because later on, they didn't even have Bic lighters in the, in the 60s, right? They hadn't even been invented yet. So, <laughs> so he had like a magician's trick. They would have this, I don't know how to describe it, but this thing you would- Like Flint? Yeah, but you'd wear it on your fingers. It would be like an apparatus yeah. so that you could move your fingers together and you'd create a, a spark. Like it was really, really cool. You know, magicians would do it. And then, he, you know, he'd have the flash paper. And I think I, I have this in the book there, but he also taught the only person he ever officially taught how to do it and officially said you can do it is Jerry Lawler. Oh, wow. Yeah, he taught Lawler. Lawler was kind of a rookie in Memphis and they had crossed paths in Tennessee and they had a few matches and and he taught him how to do it but there were a lot of other guys that did it including people like great mephisto i think skandor akbar used to do it but these were guys that had no offense to them but they were copying him they were copying his act wow he wasn't always thrilled about it but lawler had his official uh 
stamp of approval. I don't know if he would have given it to you if you were here. You know, <laughs> Actually, one of the shows you guys did, if I'm not mistaken, when you did that was in Detroit or in the area. And I remember tweeting something about it, like fireballs flying in Detroit once again or something like that. <laughs> well, it's interesting because for me, like I won't do that unless it's like a backstage segment, just in case I, I don't trust it live. Right. But Sheik's throwing those things live. And you mentioned the one kid <laughs> said that you missed the one fireball and she got so angry at him. He threw a fireball at the kid while he was driving. Yes. Tommy Dreamer told me that story that they brought the Sheik into the ECW arena one time, <laughs> one time. And it was, it was Sheik and Taz against uh, Kevin Sullivan and, um, it was someone of prominence. I can't remember. Pat Tanaka. Pat That's Tanaka. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Sheik uh, basically couldn't even, again, he couldn't get in the ring. So the whole match was outside the ring, running around the arena, you know, stabbing Kevin Sullivan, hitting him with the ring hammer and all this stuff. He threw a fireball. It missed by a country mile. And there was a fan that was driving them back to the hotel. So it's like Tommy Dreamer, Sabu, Sheik in the car, and this fan who's driving them. And the fans said something to the effect of like, boy, you're, you know, I, I really loved seeing you tonight, even though you, you missed the fireball, but that's okay. That's okay. And Sabu is back there going like, don't say that. Listen, you do not say that. <laughs> and he turned and this is the guy who's driving them. Tommy said they were going over a bridge <laughs> and he threw a fireball right at the guy. And he said, the Sheik said something like, did I miss that time? <laughs> or something like that. So he, he took it very, uh, very, very personal. Yeah, yeah. His fireball acumen. Last question for you: Who would you consider to be the Sheik's biggest rivals? Uh, for, for like you mentioned, we talked almost a fifty-year career and drawing some of the biggest gates for his territories and Japan and L.A. and Dallas and all those places. Who were who were some of his biggest all-time rivals? Well, there is no question at all. Uh, the number one, and it's not even close, is Bobo Brazil. Oh, wow. You're talking about the Sheik and Bobo Brazil is probably up there as the longest wrestling feud of all time. I mean, maybe like Bill Dundee and Jerry Lawler, I don't know, or something like that. But yeah, the Sheik and Bobo Brazil, I mean, they had their first match in the 50s. They had their last match in the 90s. And especially in the 60s and 70s, from about 1964 to about 1977 or 8, I don't think a month went by that they weren't wrestling each other somewhere. They had hundreds of matches. I tried my best to track them all down. I'm sure I still missed many, many of them. But So Bobo would be number one in Detroit and in big time. You had people like Mighty Igor, who was a big rival of Sheik. Bull Curry would be the kind of perennial ally slash enemy, depending you know, what year it was of the Sheik, Abdullah the Butcher, yeah, Pampero Furpo, another big rival of the Sheik. Out in California, it was Blassie. In Texas, it was the whole Funk family. I mean, the father and both sons. And in New York, you had Bruno. Uh, really, in New York, it was really mainly Bruno. Mm -hmm. I don't even think, maybe Haystacks Calhoun a couple of times, but but those are the, oh, Tiger Jeet Singh, I can't forget, and especially in Canada, Tiger Jeet Singh was a major opponent for the Sheik. And of course, when he went out to Japan, I mean, it was Baba. Yeah. I mean, th there was Baba and also the Funks too, right? Yeah, the Funks, because, oh yeah. my God, I, people always ask me like, what's the best match of Sheiks that I can watch? Because, you know, look, so many of them you can't watch. There's no footage a lot for a lot of it. The best one is in Japan, 1977. It's the World Tag League Tournament, All Japan. And it's Terry and Dory Funk Jr. against the Sheik and Abdullah the Butcher. And it's beautifully preserved. I mean, the quality, you can really watch it and you can get an idea of the absolute insanity and chaos and mayhem that these guys generated. I mean, it's like, the, you could just feel the, the dread in the crowd of just like, they're witnessing something that could go completely off the rails at any moment. It, it's amazing to watch. You can watch it right now as soon as we're finished, Brian. Yeah, you should. Once again, congratulations on on your book and winning the the book of the year. And overall, are you uh, you satisfied and happy that you wrote it and happy with the outcome? I am. I couldn't be more happy. I mean, winning that award is like I don't know. I mean, I, as far as wrestling books go, I can't think of a of a better honor that there is. I mean, I didn't even think. I thought for sure it was going to be Brian Gewertz. Oh yeah, he did his book last year and. 
he's the way more famous Brian of the two of us. So I kind of thought that it would be <laughs> him, but I'm glad that people enjoyed it that much. The subscribers to vote for it. I'm, I'm thrilled. And now I'm starting, I'm actually starting my next one up, my next wrestling book for ECW Press. Can you tell us what it's going to be about? Or is it a secret? Well, Chris, I'm glad you asked. No, I, I, I actually, I, I wish I had saved it. I could have officially announced it here. I mentioned it a few days ago, but it's going to be a biography of Gorilla Monsoon. Mm, that's awesome, man. It's going to be called Irresistible Force, The Life and Times oh. of Gorilla Monsoon. Contract <laughs> signed, and I'm just starting the process of, you know, reaching out to people and starting research. And I know, I mean, I'm imagining by the timeline, I'm thinking you probably just missed him because by the time you got yeah. there, he was kind of in really bad health or almost at the end of his life. But I'm trying to really find the the right people to talk to. He was, to be perfectly frank, a much more kind of liked person than the Sheik. So there's a lot more people <laughs> that are willing to talk about him. And so I'm, I'm excited about it. He's just this universally beloved figure that old school fans love and even younger fans know and love. So I'm excited to take on the project. Gorilla taught me you got to hook the leg. You can't win that's if you don't right. hook the leg. So, And now everybody does it, thanks to him. That's yeah. true, yeah. Uh, great talking to you, man. And when you get your Gorilla book done, we'll have you back to discuss that. All right, we'd love to do it. Thanks, Chris. Cheers, man. And I can beat Ricky Steamboat. All right, I, I know. I, that was, <laughs> uh, listen, water under the bridge, right? Water under the bridge. <laughs> thanks, dude. All right, bye. 